This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. House prices in the United States are rising at their fastest pace in 12 years. That's according to the latest report from Zillow, which shows home values are up by 8.7% from a year ago to more than $215,000. Here's a sobering fact. Last time we saw this rate of appreciation was in 2006, just before the bursting of the housing bubble. Should we be concerned? To answer that question and to tell us a little bit about where we are in housing generally, I'm joined now by Aaron Terrazas, senior economist at Zillow, formerly with the U.S. Treasury, and a returning guest to the program. Aaron, thanks for coming back to the Real Estate Hour. Thank you for having me back. So I'd like to start with sort of just your general observations on where we are with house prices nationally today. Yeah, so as you noted, uh, home values are appreciating at 8.7% nationwide. Um, as you, that's kind of the fastest pace that we've seen since summer 2006. Now, it is important to keep in mind that that last time that we saw this pace in summer 2006, home value appreciation was already slowing. Uh, the pace of home value appreciation peaked in, in um, mid-2004 and kind of gradually slowed, slowed down over the next two years before really slowing down pretty, pretty sharply in, in 2006 and 2007. Um, so, you know, the last time we saw this, we were already on, on the downswing from, from the, from the 2000, mid-2000s bubble. Um, but, you know, there are kind of diverging trends nationwide. In a place like uh, San Jose, Silicon Valley, home values are now appreciating 26% year-over-year off of a base of 1.2 million. So that is um, certainly eye-popping. Yeah, that is an amazing number. Now, I want to just stick for a moment with this contrast and comparison with 2006. So in 2006, things were already beginning to slow down. The underlying drivers of the appreciation, I gather, are somewhat different as well. Can you first tell us a little bit about volume? How does uh, how do the number of home sales out there today compare to where we were in 0506? That's a great point. Kind of back in the mid 2000s, we were seeing very high um, sales numbers. Uh, home sales have been sluggish to recover. Um, existing home sales have been roughly flat over the past year and a half to two years. New home sales are up, but really have um, kind of struggled to to take off over the past couple of years. Um, they're nowhere near. Um, what we would expect given the level of demand out there. So, you know, if you think about the, the mid-2000s, that was really kind of a, a story of um, kind of uh, hyperactive demand and supply keeping up. Uh, the price appreciation we're seeing today um, is, in some respects, a, a response to demand, although kind of much more muted. We're not seeing the, the types of lending we saw in the mid-2000s. But really, the story has been um, kind of why has supply not responded more aggressively. Right. And we've had, when we've had uh, uh, folks from the team at Zillow come on the show, National Association of Home Builders as well, I think one of the things that has been cited again and again as part of the explanation for this you know, very robust rate of appreciation is the constraint to new supply. While we've had a lot of building in rental apartments in the United States over the course of this cycle, um, we just have not seen a lot of activity for single-family homes. Can you just run through us really quickly once again? You know, what are the real constraints on uh, new single-family home building in the U.S.? 
You're right. So single-family home building has struggled. Home builders are facing enormous cost winds, cost headwinds. Uh, you think about the the big kind of inputs into home building, land. Land prices are are, are very high. Um, in, in kind of to make that kind of all the more complicated, we've seen concentrated job growth um, in expensive urban cores um, where land is is naturally scarce. Um, a decade, decade and a half ago, we kind of we saw the the locus of job growth in in suburban communities. So the land proximate to jobs is more expensive. Uh, obviously, kind of labor headwinds. Um, immigration policy um, has has kind of made um, kind of finding construction labor all the more complicated for home builders. Um, and then um, and then materials. Uh, you know, trade policy. We've had kind of this ongoing softwood lumber dispute with with Canada. Um, steel and aluminum, to, to a lesser degree, are also important inputs to, to home building. Um, and, um, and, you know, home builders are kind of facing higher costs for all of the inputs that, that go into home building. Right. When we uh, think about sort of the potential for what perhaps at this point look like trade skirmishes to, uh, skirmishes to, to devolve into sort of you know, outright trade wars with some of our most important trading partners, certainly softwood lumber from Canada, being a critically important input here. How much of a concern does your team have around the possibility that you know, this constraint from very high input prices uh, you know, could become um, sort of actually much more difficult over the next year? You know, home builders have long kind of targeted slightly above kind of above average home in the construction, kind of building new homes. They've always come in a little bit higher price point than, than your typical existing home. But that gap has, has just continued to widen. Um, and, um, you know, if if you think about kind of where this goes from here, um, you know, there are kind of no obvious um, places where where these the, the headwinds begin to shift. Um, softwood lumber, there there is some kind of domestic production um, that could expand, but it, it is kind of limited. Uh, another kind of um, often overlooked kind of um, victim in this trade war is uh, shingles. Kind of, um, the, kind of a lot of the, the standard roofing shingles also come from Canada. They've been subject to additional tariffs. And unlike kind of your, your framing lumber, there is almost no domestic production. So that's not going to stimulate um, kind of a, a domestic supply response. That's just going to be a cost passed along to consumers. So as a side note to this, I know we're talking about home sales, but wouldn't all of these also be things that would impact the cost and viability of making a home improvement or an extension, adding a new kitchen? Uh, Are we seeing that, you know, U.S. homeowners are a little bit more constrained in being able to do those things as well? You're you're right, kind of all the materials, all the labor costs, those are kind of, you know, the same inputs that go into home building as they go often into home renovation. Um, You know, I I, I do think kind of there has been a little bit more home renovation activity just because um, the land costs and replacement costs are so high. A lot of existing homeowners who kind of in a, in a different market would decide to go sell their home and, and buy a bigger home, they're deciding to renovate and add an extra bedroom or, or whatever they need um, just to avoid having to go out onto the open market. Yeah. So you, you described sort of one of the drivers. You know, on, on one hand, we've got sort of this uh, you know, limited movement in the supply curve. Uh, but uh, it, when we look at sort of some of these urban core markets where the land is scarce, where we've got meaningful job growth, sounds like a sort of a perfect storm of factors driving very significant depreciation. And, and you mentioned San Jose specifically, you know, starting on a base of $1.2 million, 26% year over year price increases. Uh, are there any markets that, uh, you know, that compare to that? Or is that really the most extreme case we see? Well, San Jose is is the outlier, but in in general, the markets where you see 
the fastest pace of appreciation are a a handful of very expensive places, San Jose, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, um, Santa Cruz um, are at the top of the list. But you also see kind of a a number of very kind of cheap and affordable markets, uh, places like like Tampa, um, Florida, Spokane, Washington, Reno, Salt Lake City. Um, They're also kind of up there in in the double digits, not 26%. They're closer to 11, 12, 13%. Um, but, um, but, you know, you do see the fastest pace of appreciation at these two extremes, the two tails of the distribution, kind of a handful of very expensive pricing markets um, where there is just such an enormous wealth effect going on and kind of a handful or, or excuse me, mostly more affordable markets um, where kind of, you know, there are a, a lar- there's a larger mass of buyers searching for affordability. Right. So these are markets that, you know, clearly are, you know, we're, we're experiencing growth in prices or increases in prices that, you know, far exceed what we would expect to see uh, in terms of you know, the, median, the median American family's, you know, wage and salary growth. Uh, are there markets around the country that are sort of, you know, bucking this trend and where we see that, you know, gosh, um, uh, you know, house prices are not appreciating. The markets, you know, for reasons that may be idiosyncratic to that market are, are still really struggling. Yeah, no, so obviously kind of in any given month, um, you know, there are kind of markets that go up, markets down, but a number of markets kind of have been been flat or, or even um, kind of falling um, on an annual basis. Um, kind of a lot of those in the past couple of years have been um, the uh, Midwestern shale markets, um, places in the shale belt running from, from Texas to North Dakota that had boomed very quickly um, during the, the early part of this decade um, as kind of people moved to those, those areas um, with the, the growing shale oil industry. And then as oil prices um, fell, um, kind of employment slacked and, and population inflows slowed to those mostly smaller communities. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, kind of Longview, Texas, for instance, um, has seen home values kind of drop 5%. Over, over the past year. Um, the, you know, there are also kind of another kind of other set of, of markets that have long struggled but continue to struggle, places like Rochester, New York, or, or Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford, in particular, is one market where um, kind of there's been some um, decisions by major employers to, to move elsewhere, um, uh, you know, perhaps searching for a more urban market. I know, um, I believe Aetna moved from um, Hartford to New York City. Got it. Um, so we we do have these markets. It sounds like in each of these cases, there's you know something perhaps uh, you know generally on the demand side. So you described your North Dakota sort of you have the ups and downs of the energy market impacting you know, what housing demand will look like over there. In the case of Hartford, you know, you've got some you know, critical employers that you know, based on their decisions about you know, where their headquarters might be located, where they're opening new offices. Uh, you know, that's going to sort of drive the demand piece of this as well. Uh, what about a market like Seattle that you're familiar with um, when you're uh, looking at sort of the kinds of price pressures that are created by you know, some of the very large tech firms that are based there um, and the possibility, let's say, of them opening up a second headquarters somewhere else that maybe – will that relieve some of the pressure on a market like Seattle? Yeah, yeah, and obviously the the elephant in that conversation is is Amazon. Um, you know, Amazon has been such a big part of Seattle's growth over the past um, decade. Really, it's you know gone from this uh, startup bookseller to really the the global um, realty retailer kind of a um, behemoth that it that it is. Um, the number of jobs in the downtown Seattle core have gone from you know five ten thousand to forty fifty thousand now. Um, bringing a lot of, of people uh, to the area. 
Um, I think kind of when we we've looked at it, um, you know, it's Amazon is we estimate about 16, 17 percent uh, explains about 16 to 17 percent of the rent appreciation that that the Seattle Metro has seen. It's not just Amazon. It's important to keep in mind. It's a lot of other employers as well. Um, you know, not only kind of employers growing or coming to, to the region, but also employers deciding to move their offices um, from kind of the, the suburbs into the city, um, and um, you know that's put the the greatest price price pressure on that urban core um, and kind of you know somewhat softer, although now accelerating price pressure in in the suburbs. Um, you know, as to the effect of of kind of major employers, you know, there's no doubt that bringing in that number of jobs, um, including a large number of, of people who have to move to the region for those jobs, um, is going to kind of shift the demand curve in, in any market. And of course, you know, as any economist would say, that the key um, difference there is how quickly the supply side is able to respond. Uh, in Seattle, um, we have seen a lot of apartment and rental apartment construction. That's one reason um, Seattle rents um, in, the, in the city core have have come down from um, you know almost double digits two years ago to three four percent annual appreciation now. So there has been a lot of apartment construction. The city has not had, and the region has not had that same scale of single family uh, home construction. And um, you know young kind of young workers um, at at some point they they do decide to move from their their urban city apartment. Um, start families and, and buy houses. And I think that's very much what um, Seattle, the Seattle market is struggling with right now, um, if, is uh, how to find kind of, um, you know, house, housing for 30-year-olds, if you will. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Aaron Terrazas, Senior Economist at Zillow. We're talking about you know, some of uh, the, those hottest housing markets in the United States, Seattle being a case in point. You know, one of the interesting things that I've been following is, um, you know, I gather there was an attempt by the city to levy a large employer tax in Seattle and in part uh, use some of those funds to sort of address uh, you know, challenges in housing affordability that are being created by this enormous impact on demand. Uh, but the, my most recent read of this, I believe, is that uh, uh, the, the the city was, has not been successful in actually moving forward with that. Uh, are those kinds of measures things that are popping up across the country, or is that something that was maybe fairly unique to Seattle? You know, um, you're, you're right, kind of about a month ago, the city council enacted kind of a head tax and um, just, I believe, yesterday kind of decided to um, withdraw that head tax. Um, you know, it's it's something that um, kind of is not unique to Seattle. There are a handful of other cities um, that have had or currently have similar um, kind of payroll taxes um, around around the country. Um, you know, the kind of the the impact that it ultimately has on the market and whether or not it will slow, I, I think, um, is really kind of ultimately kind of what happens to employment. Employers don't locate employees in a particular place just because of cost. That you know there are kind of uh, considerations around you know where they you know where their employees want to be. Um, so so I think kind of cost and, and these taxes are a relatively small part of of where employers decide um, to locate. Um, and, um, you know, and I think kind of the, the story of what happens in Seattle is, is still waiting to be played out. The, the challenges that the city um, are, are facing kind of in part because of growth and, um, and uh, lack of capacity to, to respond to growth um, are, are daunting. And, and, you know, the, the city's homeless population is rising. Kind of we've 
looked at the relationship between rising rents and homelessness. Um, and places like Seattle, San Francisco, New York, D.C. do have a, kind of a pretty strong relationship between, between rents and homelessness. Um, and tackling those challenges kind of no doubt requires kind of the full community to come together and respond. Yeah. In a future program, I'd love to explore that with you and understand sort of what is the actual dynamic and mechanism through which you know, rising home costs, rising rents will result in those uh, higher rates of uh, of homelessness? Or what, what's the dynamic for that individual who maybe has that experience? Um, and, and what kind of policies might cities adopt to actually you know, address or ameliorate um, you know, some of those outcomes? Uh, but before we, uh, you know, before we go there, um, you know, sort of a, a related question, I mean, home ownership rates are actually up now. Uh, so they bottomed out at about 62.9%. You know, it, certainly there are folks on the, you know, the rental investment side who, you know, were, you know, prognosticating sort of how it would sort of, you know, fall even lower. Uh, but we've actually seen that things are turning a corner. We're up to 64.2%. Uh, are, are home ownership rates sort of going to be on the rise for the next little while? Yeah, so you're right. Kind of home ownership rates bottomed out probably about a year and a half, two years ago um, at under 63%. That was the lowest home ownership rate I, I believe we'd seen since the Johnson administration. So that certainly, um, you know, uh, shocked a lot of people. And it has increased. Um, it's If you look back over the past year, it's increased most uh, among young adults, among that kind of uh, 34 and under population. Um, and um, that is kind of, you know, a, a sign that millennials are, are nesting and, and buying homes after delaying these decisions for so long. It still remains, I believe, uh, eight percentage points for those young adults, eight percentage points below where it was in 2005. So still kind of the homeownership rate is, is well below where it was in the mid-2000s. But overall, um, kind of the homeownership rates are roughly in line with where they were, say, in the early 1990s. Um, I still think there, you know, there is room for the homeownership rate to increase a little bit, but I, I, we, we probably are kind of approaching the tail end of of the millennial home buying um, kind of uh, kind of shopping spree, uh, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of millennials delayed all sorts of decisions during during the crisis years. Um, they now feel confident enough to to move forward with their lives, and um, you know, many of them have done so over the past year, year and a half. They've been driving the housing market since, you know, 2017. Um, and, um, and I think kind of we are approaching the tail end of, of that phenomenon. So when we do look at that, how much of that improvement for the 34 or 35 and under cohort is uh, about or can be explained by, you know, uh, more stability in the job market, maybe for skilled uh, young households, you know, better wage uh, growth, uh, you know, they've been able to build up a little bit of savings. They feel maybe more confident uh, about the housing outlook. Sort of that that initial that fear that followed the housing bust has sort of dissipated a little bit. Uh, the, the households, uh, you know, even though they're still millennials, are they're aging and they're thinking about families. Mm-hmm. And how much of it on the other side is that it's just gotten a little bit easier to get a mortgage? Yeah, so so it it certainly has gotten a little bit easier to get a mortgage, um, particularly you know if you have a stable documentable income, particularly if you have a good credit score. Um, that said, you know, the kind of if you are someone kind of with a, a more marginal credit score, um, it, it is still kind of very difficult to get a mortgage. We are seeing some more high higher LTV lending out there and um, particularly in those those pricing markets um, that has made it easier for for younger buyers um, who don't necessarily have a, a big down payment to put down to get into the market. But, you know, I, I think kind of if you look at the, the long arc, um, kind of lending standards 
kind of remain, um, you know, probably easier than normal for stable income, stable credit score folks, but um, but tighter than they were a decade ago for kind of um, folks with kind of a, a, a lower credit score. Um, I think kind of the, the increase that we're seeing in the homeownership rate among millennials um, is, is primarily driven by those those life life factors, um, and um, and more importantly, kind of you know, while the homeownership rate for those younger adults has increased, um, I still think that many of them are kind of remaining renters for a longer period of of their lives than a generation ago, if, if you will. Um, if you're uh, exercise, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, if you're just, just a reset for our for our guests, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Sam Chan, and my guest is Aaron Terrazas, Senior Economist at Zillow. Um, so we have a bit of an idea of sort of what's driving some of those millennial households. They will tend to remain renters longer than has been the case uh, historically, but we, we do see a larger number uh, becoming homeowners at this point. Um, when we think about the next year or two, uh, I guess you know, one of the you know, potential challenges for this cohort is that uh, it's getting a lot more expensive to finance your home than what we've seen over the course of this cycle. The 30-year now above 4.5%. How is that impacting your outlook? That's right. So the 30-year fixed mortgage has kind of increased about 75 basis points since the start of the year, now approaching their highest rates since the start of this decade. Um, that said, they're still low by historical standards. 4.5% 30-year fixed mortgage rates is basically lower than it ever was before 2010. Um, and so, sure, as mortgage rates rise, it's going to eat into what homebuyers can afford to pay, particularly as they get approach their historic levels of five and a half, six, above six percent. Um, but I think at four and a half percent, five and a half or five percent by the end of the year, um, that's that's still very affordable by historic standards. There are some places where that matters more. Obviously, in those pricey coastal markets, small increases in mortgage rates translate into much bigger increases in in mortgage payments. When we're looking at the tax code, uh, obviously some some big changes came in uh, December of 2017, become relevant for us now. Uh, what are you seeing? What do you anticipate that we'll see in terms of how the new tax code is I- impacting homeowners or prospective homeowners? Right, there were some big changes in 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 the uh, in the tax um, cuts and jobs act that was was passed in in December. The biggest kind of changes were that we limited some of the historic uh, itemized deductions that, that benefited homeowners and expanded the standard deduction, lowered marginal rates. On average, your, your typical American taxpayer got a tax cut this year. Um, I think the, the average tax cut is around $1,600. The median tax cut is around $900. Um, and, you know, putting more kind of money in people's pockets, they're going to spend it um, or save it. Um, we estimate that renters will spend about $0.11 cents on, on their tax cut dollar um, on upgrading their housing situation, if that's renting a bigger home or buying or kind of finally moving into buying a home, um, they'll, they'll dedicate about 30 cents of that tax cut dollar to savings. Some of that savings will be for a down payment. So we do expect that um, kind of these these tax changes by putting more money in in the taxpayer's pocket will will add you know uh, in com- total between purchases, new rentals, and and home improvements about 38 billion dollars um, to the housing market this year. Um, obviously, those, those tax cuts were skewed to higher-income individuals, um, and lower-income individuals are more likely to, to spend um, any of those gains, and, and the effects could have been larger had tax cuts been targeted more toward lower-income individuals. So I'm based in New York City. So one of the 
things that's you know certainly uh, uh, you know impacted me and everyone else in New York um, with uh, w- with the tax reform has been the, the cap on the salt deduction for state right. and local taxes. Uh, when we're, so when we're thinking about you know that piece of it, I mean, if you own you know a one bedroom condo in Manhattan or parts of Brooklyn or Queens, uh, right away you're blowing through uh, your salt cap. Um, yep. Are we going to see that there are markets like New York, uh, other parts of the country, where sort of you know, the, the the state and local tax efficiencies just aren't there? Uh, the tax burdens are fairly high. Where you know this is actually going to be a bit of a drag on housing markets. That, that's a great point, and you know I think at least in 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 the real estate world, there was so much concern about changes to the mortgage deduction as the tax law was being discussed. Um, I feel like the um, changes to the salt deduction are are a much bigger deal. Um, if you look at the the typical amount um, of kind of that salt deduction for different um, households across the income spectrum, um, you know, roughly kind of your if your household in the income of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, you begin to um, to pass that um, that that ten thousand uh, deduction cap pretty quickly, depending on on the state tax rate. In places like California and New York um, and Connecticut, and New Jersey, um, states with relatively high local taxes, um, middle income families are probably going to feel the squeeze most. Um, higher income families kind of may see a offset because of um, because of the the distributional effects of, of the marginal tax rate cuts. Um, but but middle income families in those high tech states are are definitely going to see their tax liabilities go up. Yeah. But one of the last things that I then want to ask you today, you mentioned that in Seattle on the rental side of the market, things have um, um, you know sort of you know, the, the, the rents have kind of flatlined. Maybe in some cases are declining. You know, one of my concerns over the course of the last several years has been the way in which you know, rental affordability has been eroded. Um, and what that's meant for you know young and, and middle income families in the United States uh, broadly, what are you seeing happening in the rental market nationwide? You're asking, yeah, yeah. So so you're right. Nationwide, we we've seen um, a lot of new construction in those priced urban cores, and we've seen rent appreciation slow down from where it was two years ago. Um, it kind of um, touched very small negatives year over year rates um, about in the past six months. It's now back above zero, a little bit below one percent. And, um, annual appreciation in, in rents nationwide, um, and um, you know, and I think kind of for anyone who who's um, kind of studying economics and and looking at the the industry, um, the fact that prices have responded to supply is is a good sign. You know, it it means that markets are working, and that um, you know the, these ebbs and flows of supply and demand. Um, you know, are are working the way that they should, and and they'll swing back one way or another uh, sooner or later, as they always do. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on to the program. Thank you for having me again. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.